So hello and welcome to uh, the latest Cornwall Insight uh, podcast. My name is James Brabham. Um, I head up our wholesale team here at Cornwall Insight uh, and I'm joined today by my colleague Andrew Enzo. Andrew, hi. Hi James. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Pleased to be talking to you this afternoon. Good, good. And Andrew, if you could just give a quick overview of what you do at Cornwall as well, because that will be um, really useful for what we're talking about today around network charging and Chinuos. Yeah, of course. So, um, my name is Andrew Enzo. I'm a senior consultant at Cornwall Insight, um, working in our consulting team, um, where we, we do uh, anything and everything that our clients ask um, uh, in the energy space. Um, my focus particularly is on um, networks um, and uh, rather geekily on network charging specifically, which um, is one of my favourite subjects, um, hence why we're, we're talking about um, transmission charging this afternoon. Um, I have a background in um, distribution network charging as well. I previously worked at Northern Power Grid, um, the DNO up here in the northeast. Um, so, uh, yeah, pleased to bring that along to, to, to this conversation this afternoon. Um, and hopefully we're going to have an interesting chat about um, about Tinios for the next 20 minutes or so. Brilliant. Thank you, Andrew. Yeah, and as we say, we'll be discussing that kind of what it is, what does it mean for people in the market? What's so interesting about it right now, uh, especially as we, we go ahead with a, a couple of big auctions coming up this year for the capacity market and the contracts for different scheme? Uh, and what might the future hold for Tinios as well? So, so, Andrew, my first question, I realise we've gone into acronyms already with Chinuos, but Chinuos, yeah, what, what is it and what, what's an overview of it and what does it mean for people in the market? Yeah, sure. So um, I'll do my best not to use their acronyms too much. To Nuos, um, we're talking about transmission network user system charges. Um, so um, these are the charges that are levied by um, they're levied by National Grid in its role as electricity system operator. Um, uh, in that role as the um, as the ESO, it levies Tinuos charges um, to recover both its own costs um, and the cost of all of the transmission owners. So the, the three onshore transmission owners um, and offshore transmission owners as well. It levies those costs on um, uh, two main groups. So it levies costs in respect of demand users on suppliers um, and also levies, levies charges direct on um, large generators. So um, we're talking typically about generators connected to the transmission system and um, those above about 100 megawatts. Um, and it's it's that that we're going to focus on on today specifically. We're going to talk about generator to new some some quite interesting things going on in that space. So generators pay um, a, a capacity charge for their transmission entry capacity. So it's a, it's a pounds per kilowatt charge, um, which is levied. So it's, so it's effectively a, a fixed cost. It doesn't vary through the year and thing. There's no kind of um, time of use signal or anything in there like we see in some of the distribution charges, um, a fixed pounds per kilowatt cost. Um, it varies by um, by generator type. So we have generators split into um, intermittent and controllable um, and uh, low carbon and um, carbon uh, emitting generators. And we also have generators split um, into zones. So the charge varies locationally as well. So um, there's currently 27 zones um, across across GB um, with um, a fair number of those in Scotland and then some larger zones in, in England as well, which we'll, we'll talk about a bit more um, in a while. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. I think that's one of the interesting things about generator chinios, as it were, is that we do see, especially when you compare it to other network charges for generators and other network charges for supply customers or suppliers as well, that regional variation and the number of regions actually as well with the 27 that we have currently um, creates some quite big impacts depending on which type of generator you are and, and where you are, I suppose, as well, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the interesting ones I, I always think that's probably worth bringing out for the audience as well is um, is the is the geographical factor with probably north and south. So a good example I think maybe we can pick out is 
Scottish uh, example with with wind, perhaps being a a typical technology there, especially in the north. Um, Is there anything we can kind of bring out around that? What's what's so interesting in Scotland with with that kind of locational element? Yeah, so um, I guess maybe just to to take a step back first and and, um, talk about how that locational variation is derived. So and and the reason why we we have this result with um, uh, the the charge for for Scottish wind in this example being relatively high, the charge is derived based on um, effectively the distance that a megawatt needs to flow to get to demand. Um, so where, where we're looking at um, generators in the north of Scotland, um, they're typically a, a long way from demand, whether that be um, the kind of nearest demand base being maybe the central belt of Scotland. Um, but also typically we're seeing um, large volumes of power flowing north to south across the, um, across the Cheviot boundary, effectively across the Scotland-England border, um, to get to demand centres in the in, in the Midlands and the, and the southeast of England. Um, so what, what we see with um, uh, generators in yours, taking that wind um, example, James, that we see um, uh, in the southeast, um, we would actually see um, a, a negative charge for that type of generator. So they would be being um, being paid an annual credit for being connected to the system. And um, effectively, that's reflecting that um, the power that they put onto the system in the south doesn't need to come across that um, constrained um, north-south boundary. Conversely, when we're seeing generators connecting um, in, in Scotland, and particularly in the far north of Scotland, um, we, we see the, the inverse of that, that um, the power flowing onto the system there has to go over a, a, a long distance to get to demand. Um, so we see um, uh, much higher charges in those regions, and um, particularly um, if we're looking at the, the kind of the very north of Scotland, um, we'll be looking at um, orders of magnitude above um, above those for, for, for generators um, even further south in Scotland, there's really a quite a stark differential and um, kind of step up when we get to the to the far north of Scotland, where um, uh, unfortunately the wind resources are very good. So there's a bit of a, um, a bit of a, a kind of um, uh, interplay there to, to get the best wind resources and uh, and lower network costs. Yeah, and I think that's a that's a really interesting point, Andrew, because I know we've done lots of work in this area as well. Is is that effectively we have this kind of I wouldn't call it a paradox, but almost the case where the network charging incentives, as you say, and you can see why they're aligned in that way, which effectively give a locational signal that the closer you are to demand as a generator, the lower your charges will be. So perhaps, you know, a potential incentive commercially for people to say, I should I should locate closer to, to demand. But on the other hand, as you say, you've got the certainly the, the best wind resources by um, wind speeds and, and load factors potentially better planning um, aspects in Scotland where there's still an ability to, to source the planning permission for those sites and land costs and those kind of things that come into it and a, a bigger history of wind development that mean even though those costs are, are high, we're, we're still seeing lots of people wanting to to build their assets in those locations almost in spite of those charges in a way. And I think you said with the extreme examples in the north, probably even more extreme is those kind of remote island wind projects as well, isn't it, that are locating in in the real northern parts of Scotland that are trying to connect as well. Yeah, absolutely, and 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 they face this even even kind of stronger locational signal in terms of the um, the cables that are needed to connect them to the to the to the mainland system. Um, they effectively pay um, are the sole payer towards those cables. Um, so where there's significant lengths of subsea links between. Um, uh, between those remote islands and, and between offshore generators and, and the and the mainland transmission system, um, there's kind of an extra add-on to the um, to the strong locational signal for being in the north of Scotland. That you've then got that extra um, that extra asset beyond the main system that you're required to to make hefty contributions to. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think just to, with my kind of hat on with with the work we do around um, the CFD and those areas as well for people in the market, that's a really interesting one that we're tracking for that market at the moment too. So. 
one of the key ones there really is typically the cheapest technology is likely to be some sort of onshore wind farm being the uh, one of the cheapest technologies to go into that auction, especially in pot one that they're going to be in competing with probably mostly with solar technologies. But actually, when you start adding these layers of different costs and benefits on and Chinuos really being the big one, it starts to really change that dynamic potentially in the auction around, um, you know, let's say a, a 100 megawatt scale solar farm versus a 100 megawatt scale onshore wind farm, likely being the onshore wind farm in in the north of scotland paying a relatively high charge as you say andrew for those network aspects throughout the life of their asset for every kilowatt um, that they need as their grid connection and having to price that into their cfd bid uh, and against that you've got a potentially a, a similar size project a solar farm which is probably likely to be located further south and if it's really far south um, is actually probably getting a credit, isn't it, for being on the transmission system um, in its location? Yes, uh, a really interesting dynamic that we see there, and and perhaps see increasingly with um, with Tenuous perhaps coming even even more dominant in, um, uh, in 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 future CFDs than it than it has to date. Uh, I know you've got your your finger on the pulse on these things, James, and and um, uh, we had the, the Crown Estate leasing round um, just released on. Is there anything that's um, that you spotted in there? Yeah, so that's an interesting one as well. Very very topical, as you say, because it's the next Crown Estate lease around where we've seen, I think, about eight gigawatts of offshore wind prospective capacity, essentially put down deposits is the simplest way I could describe it, of, of uh, seabed leases. Uh, they pay a kind of deposit fee until they get their planning permission. Uh, hopefully for those sites that then they can start the process of going into future CFD rounds. Um, the, the round was for Crown Estate England. There's a separate Scotwind leasing round going on currently. Uh, they're done They're done separately. Um, but there has been quite a lot of talk in the industry actually about the, the scale of the price in, in England or the high prices that some of these developers have been willing to pay to secure those rights uh, and whether we'll see a similar thing in Scotland. And actually one of the interesting things you have to to marry up to compare those two bids as it were it is chinuos because a uh, uh, an offshore wind farm let's say in the in uh, the fourth of firth or um where some of the projects are like moray or sea green are good examples will be facing a lot higher uh, network charging costs throughout the through their throughout their lifetime as it were under chinuos than those located off dogger bank or east anglia array as an example so that feeds its way all the way back into some of those prospective bids for future projects is every generator will be thinking about once I'm on the system, what are my revenues, obviously, under the CFD or other things, but but really, what are my costs as well? And Chinuos really seems to be rising up the agenda as, as the big one that most people have to factor into their into their behavior really in the market yeah and, and i think it's really interesting particularly in those leasing rounds that we're looking at um at generator connections that are a long way in the future and with it are already pricing in and um, this tenuous variability yeah and i think that's one of the key things i was probably going to ask you another question on actually andrew was how how people do try and price that in because realistically at the moment we have obviously um Chinuos charges that are that are set for a year and then obviously have a five-year forecast from National Grid that, that comes with that to give people a view. But on top of that, there's a lot of other things going on and, and changing all the time with Chinuos and, and modification. So what does the future look like at the moment for, for Chinuos charging? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question, James. Um, and uh, you're right to flag that there is a lot of uncertainty right now. Um, so we're just um, within the past fortnight or so had the, the, the final charges that will apply from April 2021 have been published. So that's the kind of notice window that we get is about two months for the for the final charges being released. In the run-up run up to that um, publication, there was a whole raft of uncertainty um, with um, 
uh, modifications going through through the um, connection and use of system code, the, the CUSC um, modification process, so that the um, the CUSC um, governs how to new OS charges are set. Um, it effectively tells the ESO what um, calculation method it has to follow to derive to new OS charges. And being under open governance, um, any party to the to, to the CUSC can um, uh, raise a modification and um, and see it be progressed and potentially by a work group and then potentially decision by Ofgem as well. Um, so we've seen um, a number of really high profile um, modifications going through in the run up to that um, 2021 publication, most notably on the transmission generator residual. Um, which has um, been a, um, a under review for, for some time um, and was um, decided upon under Ofgem's targeted charging review, but that should be um, uh, set to zero ideally, um, or at least reduced as far as it can be subject to remaining com remaining compliant with um, regulations that set a cap on the um, uh, total uh, generated to EOS charges. So we've had that uncertainty going through, um, and that's um, uh, by no means the end of it. So we're looking ahead at the next um, the next uh, two or three years with with um, significant uncertainty, uh, regulatory uncertainty in there, um, with uh, modifications to um, some quite techy things, which I won't go into in too much detail, but things like um, the expansion constant, which um, effectively uh, sets how strong the locational signal is. So if we increase that expansion constant, we um, strengthen the locational signal. So have um, uh, higher charges in Scotland and higher credits in the southeast of England. Um, that's under review. Um, we, we expect um, there's, there's a modification already running and we expect more to come um, in that area. Um, we, we've just had the, 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 the price controls, which has been re, um, remiss not to mention um, to now, really. We've got Rio T2 starting in um, 2021, which sets the um, allowed revenues that the um, network companies are allowed to recover. Um, so at least some kind of consistency there over the next five years that we've got a, a, a good view on that. Albeit compared to previous price controls, we have less certainty. There are there are more reopeners in those price controls, so they could be revisited at a later date to enable the network companies to react to um, changes in the way the system's used over the next five years. And then we've also got the, uh, uh, besides those kind of regulatory uncertainties, we've got the, the fundamentals of the system um, changing in terms of, um, we, we've spoken at, already at length about um, developments of, of uh, both offshore and onshore wind, um, uh, you mentioned solar as well, James, um, where we're seeing um, the location of generators on the on the system um, relative to one another and relative to demand um, changing quite fundamentally over the next, um, well, well, let's say out to 2050 really, um, but, but over the next 10 years particularly we, we expect to see um, really quite a significant shift in the in the balance of, um, of the location of generation compared to demand. So um, not only have we got the regulatory uncertainty that I've spoken through, but also those um, all those impacts of where generators are connected relative to demand impacts um, that locational signal, which is calculated um, uh, in the underlying Tineos charge calculation. Um, so, so a lot of uncertainty there, which um, uh, the ESO gives us um, some help on with a, with a five-year forecast. Um, but, but as we've already spoken about with, um, with these generators looking at, at leasing rounds, for example, look, need to look well beyond that. Yeah, I think that's a really critical point, isn't it, Andrew, that not only have you got the regulatory changes, which at least you have some foresight of when they might be implemented or if they might be implemented, it's actually such a dynamic element that if a demand base changed or if new generators connect to the system especially if they're very sizable then it's all one interconnected system in a sense or formula that works out this charge and where the flow of electricity is expected to go that then influences the total pricing spread to everybody else so as you say you know over the next 10 years some good examples are you know the closure of coal and some nuclear stations 
that will change the balance of 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 where the power flows go up from from those assets, notably many in the kind of North Midlands and and uh, Southwest. And then on the other hand, you've got a, a rapid rise in interconnection. Uh, connections that are expected to come through in the 2020s. Again, most of those connecting to the south and east, which depending on how national grid models the flows could either be sources of power coming in or sources of demand if we're exporting to the continent, which again changes the dynamic, doesn't it, of who who should be paying and how they should be paying this uh, this charge. Yeah, and, and and really significantly as well. I don't think we should we should underestimate the kind of extent that um, that new new generators coming on and old generators going off has um, on that locational signal. Yeah, and I nearly forgot to mention offshore wind. We've already mentioned them already, but all those <laughs> offshore connections coming through as well, we can't forget those. Yeah, so lo- lots of change. And I suppose one kind of final question for me on that is, is, how are we helping people through that at the moment? I know it's one of the big areas we work on and we get asked about a lot. It's something, as you say, that we we, we definitely geek out on, but it's something that's very important to people. So w- what's the kind of work we've been doing people to help them understand this? Yeah, so, so we've been... Um, We've been doing some work for, for for a while, helping people with the regulatory uncertainty. Um, we we do some some pretty in depth analysis of um, uh, those modifications that I spoke about, and and many more. Um, so we have a um, a tool that we um, will uh, use with our customers to um, help them uh, estimate the impact of those modifications going forward. But reacting to this need for um, longer term forecasts as well, we're just releasing our um, our own fifteen year view of Tenuos. So um, we've um, Effectively taken the requirements of the of, of the CUSC of the Connection and Use System Code that um, that governs Tenios, um and implemented that um, over a 15-year time horizon using um, the the generation mix and demand mix from our um, our power market model, our benchmark power curve. Um, so um, we can give that long-term view, taking into account both um, regulatory and underlying changes in um, in power flows across the system, which we can use to give. Um, forecasts of uh, of tenuous GB wide, and um, so we can look at all all zones for a kind of for a given technology, um, and we can also look on a on a on a site by site basis to give bespoke analysis of um, of the direction of tenuous uh, on a year by year basis out for that fifteen year time horizon, taking into account the likely outcomes of ongoing modifications, but also giving customers um, uh, tools that then mean that they can. Um, can model different outcomes for those modifications, so that tool kind of remains remains live um, and, and remains uh, up to date over potentially a, a relatively long period of time. That um, the parameters can be tweaked um, and, and the forecast recalculated. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. Because I think that's, as you say, one of the really interesting things is, of course, it's always changing. And if we do this podcast in a year time, in a year's time, I'm sure our our forecast will be tweaked and changed to account for the fact that we've got different generators coming on or off. There's been more modifications coming through the system, or, or the ones that we've talked about have either been implemented or approved or rejected by Offgem as well. So it's it's a real moving feast, isn't it, in terms of in terms of uh, activity here. It, it is, yeah. Uh, but I think where we're, we're where we're quite well placed to help there is um, um, from from a couple of angles. Really, we have um, our our, um, our teams are always keeping an eye on those regulations and what's going on um, on a day to day basis. So um, I attend the, the Cusk panel meetings, for example, so I get some some live um, live information there, um, and the, the the market monitoring as well, and and forecasting that the team do through the um, benchmark power curve really gives us that long term view to be able to make. Um, Make good good judgments on which generators uh, will connect where over that time horizon. So give a, a a robust forecast. Brilliant. Thank you, Angie. Well, thank you very much for for joining me today and talking about Chinoos. We hope it's been uh, helpful for everybody in understanding what it is, uh, 
why it's so important for a lot of people in the market. And of course, as always with energy topics, how it's changing in the future. Um, just to say, if you are interested in, in talking about Chinuos further, we of course have got the bespoke work that Andrew and, and others in our team work on and our 15-year newly launched Chinuos forecast, if you do want to talk about that. So please do get in touch for details to, to discuss that or anything related to network charging. Uh, as Andrew says, we're always looking at it on the pulse of it and, and studying the detail for, for our customers and clients. So we hope you enjoyed the podcast today. Uh, thanks for joining me again, Andrew. Thanks, James. Pleasure. And thank you very much. Thank you very much for everybody listening. We hope to uh, speak to you again soon. Thank you very much. Thank you.